All right, well, if you can find your seats and grab your Bibles, we're going to go to Mark 5. Excuse me, no, Mark 6. We're in 6 this morning. Um, and uh, where, we've, where we've been over the past several weeks is we've just been walking through the gospel according to Mark, is, just, is following the life and ministry of Jesus. And, uh, and, and last week, as Danny um, did such a good job for us, uh, illustrating and, and, and articulating uh, the, the, the uh, just amazing thing that Jesus did, and, and not just healing a woman's uh, physical disease, but in, but in completely healing her life. I mean, this woman who had been ceremonially unclean for 12 years because of the issue of blood and, and how that, that demanded from those that she lived closest to, her friends and her relatives, that they, that they stay away. Uh, and then at the same time, that Jairus and his daughter, who uh, it comes to Christ and, and gets, uh, gets in some ways pushed away because this woman comes and, and yet Christ is to both of them saying, do not fear, only believe. And as you look back from the, this, the past several weeks as we've been looking at the scriptures and what Mark records, that word fear shows up time and time again. The disciples were on the boat, and when Jesus calmed the storm, they, they were terrified. They had great fear. And then Jesus goes to the region of Gerasna and, and heals the man with a legion of demons. And the townspeople hear about it, and they come, and they get the eyewitness testimony, and they respond in great fear. And then the woman is, and I keep pointing to Cindy because she just played the woman. And like, the woman, it, 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 the, the woman, she was, she was fearful of what those around here would think about. And Jairus was afraid and fearful that his daughter had died. And you have Christ, I think, in in some ways at the end of chapter 5, summarizing for us perhaps what Mark had been just giving us instances and glimpses into uh, from the past several weeks where do not fear, only believe. That can go back to the disciples, the guys on the boat. Hey, don't fear, only believe. And he actually said to them, do you not have faith? Don't fear, only believe. The townspeople don't fear, only believe. The woman, Jairus. And, and we hit an interesting point in Mark this morning where we're, we're at a transitional moment in the book. Uh, and so these, these two accounts that we're going to look at in verses uh, 1 to 13 um, aren't really connected to each other, uh, and yet there are comparisons and contrasts that we're going to see in them. Um, but but there, it's a transitional point in the book where Jesus' ministry at this point had been far more characterized by him calling the disciples to himself, um, by them walking around together, by him leading them and teaching them, and, and being the primary one that was doing the teaching. And yet now in chapter 6, we're going to see that shift a little bit where we had Jesus calling them. Now we're going to see this morning Jesus is sending them. And in verses uh, 7 to 13, we get to Jesus sending the apostles out two by two where they're no longer just the men following Jesus, watching what he's doing, hearing his teaching, learning from him, they're now being sent out to go and do what he told them in chapter 3 when they ascended the mountain, he would do. Give them authority to preach. Give them authority over unclean spirits. And so just I want to make a few observations about the text this morning, just as we think about it. And so there's some comparisons and some contrasts in these 13 verses. And so just real briefly, uh, in verse 1, Jesus is with his disciples. 
It may have been the 12. It certainly was the 12. It may have been the larger group. We don't know. We just have the word disciples. But there in verse 7, the apostles, which would have been the 12, were sent away. And so there's a contrast between Jesus teaching with them and now Jesus sending them away. You have in verse 1, Jesus is in his hometown. But in verse 8 and 9, the apostles are sent away and they become functionally homeless. It's a contrast there in the the text. Jesus is teaching. Here's a comparison. And the apostles went out and they preached. Mark doesn't record their sermons, but I think that's purposefully. He keeps just, I think, pointing us back when he uses the word teaching and preaching to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 1, where Jesus came and said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. You've got Jesus is not received by his hometown family and, and countrymen, by the Nazarites. And here the apostles are instructed in what to do if they are not received. You have in verse 5, Jesus is not able to do any mighty work. But in verses 11 and 12, it should be 11 and 12, the apostles are doing mighty works. And they are healing and they are casting out demons And so when you get to verses 1 to 6, and we look at the rejection of Jesus by those in his hometown, the rejection of Jesus is not something that was new to Jesus. It was not something that his apostles or disciples had never heard before or had never experienced before. And so we're going to put on the screen just just the, the places right now or the groups of people that Jesus has been rejected by. You have him being rejected by local religious leaders, the leaders of the local synagogues, those there that they they left and they plotted with the Herodians. Those were the political leaders uh, on how to destroy Jesus. That was in chapter 3. But then you had later in chapter 3, the national religious leaders coming down. Those, Those guys coming down from Jerusalem, continually saying that Jesus is doing these things. He's performing miracles. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. He was nationally opposed. But his family, chapter 3, thought he was crazy as well. And they came and they sought to take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. And then we see the townspeople in response to Jesus healing the man with a legion of demons. They rejected him and pled with him, begged him, leave. We don't want you here. And now here in verses 1 to 6 of Mark 6, we see that Jesus is rejected by the very people he grew up living with. So let's go to the text. Let's read it. We'll go from there. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon. Are these not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except he laid hands on a, very few, on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Can we pray together? We'll start looking at the text a little bit more in depth. Father God, thank you for this morning. 
We thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to gather here together. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for, for what you are doing in our lives, both individually and what you're doing in our church. And Lord, here in these next few minutes, we, we pray that you'd come and meet with us in a special way, that we may be able to, to see your word and understand your word. And, and, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and help, help your word make sense to us. Lord, we pray that we would become more like Jesus as we, as we read what it is that you've said. And so, Lord, come and, and change us. Come and move and work in this place. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. So you see in verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples were with him. And verse 2, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, Jesus' teaching in the synagogue was, was something that was fairly regular for him. And, and Mark records a few of those instances for us. And we have one in chapter 1, verse 21. We've got it in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. He, he, we're not recorded. We don't have recorded what he taught, but he was there. And that's where he healed the man with the withered hand. And then now here in Mark 6, 1 to 6, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And, and in some ways, this has patterned the, the ministry of the, the apostle Paul and others when they went out post-resurrection of Christ, they went to the synagogues. They opened up the Old Testament scriptures and they taught people about Jesus from the Old Testament. And this is, by and large, what Jesus is doing in his ministry as well. And so as he's teaching, there is a response by the people that he is teaching. And the response is this, it's astonishment. They were astonished at what he had to say. Now this response of astonishment isn't necessarily a new response to the teachings of Jesus. You have the, the family of Jairus who, uh, when they saw the little girl was healed, they responded, verse 42 of chapter 5, in amazement. You have the, uh, the, the people in the Decapolis when the man healed by the legion of demons went around sharing what Jesus had done. Verse 20 of chapter 5, they marveled. You have in chapter 1 of Mark, when Jesus goes into the synagogue and is teaching and, and heals a man, they were all amazed because of this new teaching that he had and the authority with which he taught. So the, the astonishment to Jesus' teaching isn't unique in its response to him, but perhaps why they're astonished is unique in this sense. They know him. They're familiar with him. He was little Jesus. He was the little boy that grew up and never did anything wrong. He was the boy that ran around and learned how to swing a hammer with his dad. And they respond to him in ways that were out of character with who they thought he was. And that's an important thing for us to realize, that they had an idea of who he was in their minds, and he broke the mold, and they couldn't get past that. Look at some of the things that astonished him. They were saying, where did this man get these things? They were astonished at the content of Jesus' teaching. 
In Luke chapter 4, Luke records uh, that Jesus went to Nazareth. He preached and he was rejected. Some want to say it's the same scenario, the same time. Others want to say it's a different time. It's probably not that important for us this morning. Um, But he came and he opened up the scroll of Isaiah, as Luke records in this, this scene. And he reads to them a prophecy about the Messiah. And he goes, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down and then he began to just tell them, things. Well, they are astonished at the content of his teaching. They're astonished at the the ideas that he has. They're astonished because they can't understand how this man who grew up in their town as a carpenter got these things. But they're secondly astonished at the wisdom given to him. They're astonished at his ability to apply knowledge They're astonished at his ability to take the contents of the teaching and and apply it in such a way that there was wisdom. And and as we unpack this and understand this, let's let's just do a little work understanding that Nazareth as a city was about 150 to 250 people. So I mean, these people have met Jesus. And then the profession and the trade of carpenter was not a profession that was looked down upon because those uh, in, in Jewish circles and cultures had a very high value on hard work. But it was not a profession that was respected to the degree or the level of a scribe. You would expect your carpenter to build your building and you'd expect your scribe to teach you about the Torah. There's a difference there. And Jesus is, is the carpenter teaching them about the Torah. It doesn't fit their mold. It doesn't fit what they're expecting. They're also astonished because of the mighty works done by him. And again, this is just little Jesus that grew up. How can he do these things? That we, we know him. We, we saw Mary change his diapers. We, we were there when he was playing kickball with what— it, They know him. They can't get past the fact that this man they thought they knew is not who they really knew at all. They were astonished at his trade. Verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James? And Mark lists his his family. They, They were astonished because, again, a carpenter was not supposed to be a scribe. Carpenter's not supposed to be a a teacher of one who had a authority. And they're astonished at his family story. And there's a lot of ideas out there. You could read a lot of different commentators um, in regards to why does Mark say, is this not the son of Mary, as opposed to is not this the son of Joseph? Because that would have been common. The, the lineage would have been spoken to in reference of the father, not the mother. Uh, here in, in just the context of the antagonism, and I, and I, think, I think part of like the finger pointing that's going on in this moment, we're not to... We're not to think that they're not prodding here at Jesus' heritage. At, at perhaps that there was, there was a little bit of, uh, of scandal that surrounded his birth. And they, and they may not have understood all the details, but perhaps the, the stories got spun ferociously in a town of 250 people. And they had their own ideas of what took place uh, around the birth of Christ. But, but they would have known Joseph. They would have known Mary. They would have known that something wasn't wasn't normal. They would have known that she was pregnant before they were wed. And they can't get past his family story. And I, I think the reference is not this the son of Mary is a bit of a is of a bit of a poke towards perhaps the illegitimacy 
of his birth in their minds? How is this man born of, of an illegitimate relationship now have the authority, or presumed to have the authority to teach us of the scriptures? And they can't get past his family story. And those who are there, who are his family, also can't get past it. And, and here is his brother James and Joseph, who probably went by Joseph and Judas and Simon. Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They can't get past his family story. They can't get past his teaching. They can't get past his wisdom. They can't get past his mighty works. They can't get past the fact that he's working outside of his trade. But Mark has just told us a couple chapters earlier that Jesus' family isn't even willing to accept him. We have recorded for us that, that Mary, I believe, recognized who Jesus was. She was at the foot of the cross and the Apostle John was instructed to love and care for her as his own mother. James is the Apostle James, or the, the elder James, who wrote the book of James, became an elder in the church of Jerusalem. Judas there, maybe for obvious reasons, shortened his name to Jude, and, uh, and we believe wrote uh, the book of Jude in the New Testament, the epistle of Jude, and, and nothing's ever mentioned of the rest of Jesus' family in regards to faith. And so you've got his brothers coming, they're his half-brothers coming to the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as their Savior and writing books of Scripture, but nothing else is mentioned. And, and, and so there's, there's, there's this family element here where even those that Jesus lived with and grew up in the same household with aren't even able to see and recognize who he really is and, and this isn't a main point in the text at all, but I will just say it. Um, Mary and Joseph had other kids. She didn't stay a virgin her entire life. We have listed here four boys and at least two girls. His sisters are plural. So she and Joseph did what normal healthy marriages do. They celebrated their marriage and they had other kids that the Lord blessed them. And here you have his brothers and his sisters being referenced. And the astonishment of those in the synagogue was that they took offense at Jesus. They took offense at him. And that word that Mark records for uh, the word offense is the same word that uh, Peter would use in quoting um, the Psalms and the prophet Isaiah in speaking about Jesus. And so Peter in 1 Peter 2, 7 to 8 says this in regards to those who acknowledge or those who do not acknowledge Christ. So the honor is for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, quoting from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is this language here, and quoting from Isaiah, Peter said they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Peter is speaking of the Jews here, not being able to acknowledge that Christ is the Messiah and stumbling over him, this stumbling stone of offense. And Peter's saying, look, this stone of offense that you have stumbled over, he's become the cornerstone. He's become the one whom everything is built on. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. 
And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And I think what we have here in these six verses is in some ways the fulfillment of what John had said in verses 11 and 12 of his gospel account. And I believe Tyler has that on the screen. Uh, He came to his own. But his own people did not receive him. And, and John's speaking collectively of the Jews, but I think you have here something very, very, uh, it's been highlighted by his own townspeople. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but by God. Here's John's account and summary description of the rejection of Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And you have that highlighted here in Mark 1 to 6 as we hit this transitionary moment in the the text. And so Jesus leaves, and Mark records he could do no mighty work there except he healed a few people. I think Mark is saying the mighty works are to be understood in comparison to what he did in Capernaum where you had upwards of of 1,500 people, an entire town's worth of people standing outside the home of Peter and Andrew, being healed of their physical diseases, having demons cast out of them. That is, is the mighty work I think we're to understand the contrast with. And so Jesus didn't have his power reduced. His authority didn't languish because of the belief of the people. But in Capernaum, where the people came to him believing that he could heal, that was not the case here. These people couldn't get over who he was or who they thought he was. And so Jesus left from there and he went on teaching in the villages. And I I think one of the questions that we just need to ask ourselves in in these few verses is, is kind of the what about you and I question. The townspeople in Nazareth were so familiar with Jesus that they were unable to see, or so familiar with the Jesus they thought they knew, they were unable to see the Jesus who he really was. And I think that's an area of temptation that you and I can fall into. We can very easily be lulled to sleep by a familiarity with Jesus. His grace may just cease to be amazing. We may cease to stop expecting God to, to meet with us and teach us in his word. We, we may just completely miss the fact that the creator and sustainer of the universe wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to pray. He wants to talk to us through his word. We can, we can be so familiar with these things and with, with the kind of the, the church thing that we find ourselves having, having an image or an understanding of Jesus Christ that maybe isn't biblical. So we've got to ask ourselves some of these questions. Are we too familiar? And, and that may just sound strange to ask the question that way because we want to know him. We want to be like him. We want to spend time in his word. But, but these people in Nazareth, they, they thought they knew him. They thought they were familiar with him. They thought they had him figured out. They thought they understood him and they completely missed every aspect of it. And they were unwilling to acknowledge who he really was because it was different than who he was in their minds. And so you and I need to ask ourselves that question. I mean, are we, are we coming here this morning because we're, quote, supposed to? 
or we believe that God's actually wanting to meet with us. He wants to do something in our midst this morning as we're together with one another and we, we come with expectation because he is a living God. Or are we just here because it's Sunday morning? It's just what we do. Tomorrow morning, if you open up your Bible and you spend time in his word, are you spending time in his word to just check it off your list of things to do for that morning? Are you spending time in his word because it's living and active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it's able to penetrate between the joints and the marrow and the soul and the spirits and, and you are communicating and communing with the living God of the universe? That's way different than, well, I, I, I do this every morning. Let me get my coffee and open my Bible and read so I feel like I can check that off. Are we approaching him with an expectation that is based on the reality of who he actually is? These townspeople in Nazareth had an expectation of Jesus that was based on a false reality. They were unable to recognize who he really is. and They couldn't get past what they thought they knew about him to see him for who he really was. And I think you and I can, can fall and err in, in similar ways. And so those are questions we need to ask ourselves as we come together and we gather on Sunday mornings and as we, as we spend time in his word and in prayer throughout the week. And so from there, Mark transitions and Jesus is leaving Nazareth. He goes about teaching among the villages and then he begins his sending ministry. And this ministry of sending with the apostles is in fulfillment of what Mark wrote in chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 when he brought them to himself and he said he's going to send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he hadn't done that yet. And now here in Mark 6, verse 7, Jesus gathers them and he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits and he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house and stay there until you depart from there, and if at any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so there's, there's something that we need to see here just as we begin. This list of what Jesus is doing is the list of the twelve. It is the twelve apostles. So there are principles that will transfer from them to us, but there are some things that are uniquely different between the ministry of the apostles and the ministry of the other followers of Jesus. And I think Mark even indicates that as he records that it was the disciples, which perhaps could have been the full complement of people, those that were in the other boats with him when they were on the Sea of Galilee and the, the ones that followed him that he pulled away and, and, and gave the meaning of the parables too, but here Mark restricts the sending out to be the twelve. And it's the twelve that are sent out. And so there's some principles that are going to transpire. And Tyler, go back a couple slides there. And some of those principles that we need to see, go back a little bit more right there, is that ministry is always more effective in teams. Jesus sends them out two by two. He sends out six teams, six pairs of people. 
And the first principle that we see here, I think, is that ministry is always more effective in teams. There may have been legal reasons for this. The, the courts would have accepted the eyewitness testimony of two individuals, but not just one. And so there could have been some legal reasons. But you have, you have uh, Ecclesiastes bearing weight on a, a cord um, of a threefold cord is not quickly broken. A, a man can't stand by himself, but we're two to lie together. There's warmth. There's, there's more effectiveness in teams. And we saw this play out at Urban Hope yesterday. We were in booths. They took PVC pipe and they constructed all these booths. And we were in booths and we were just in booths two by two. And we were just in teams. And it, and it wasn't for some magical reason other than we're just more effective that way. When somebody's having a conversation with a little kid and I was at the memory verse booth, so when I'm working with a five or six-year-old asking them to, to work on reading Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the, the other gentleman that's there with me is, is able and free to go and have that conversation with somebody else. And, and it wasn't just all dependent on one person. And that's part of the transition that's occurring here at Mark is that the ministry of Jesus is, is now beginning to be placed out into the hands of those that he has called to himself. And he has spent time equipping and discipling his disciples. And they're not perfect, which is something else we need to recognize. These men don't understand everything. They didn't understand him in the boat. Give it a couple chapters. They're not going to understand what he actually came to do. Peter is going to oppose him and his work of going and dying on the cross. But here they are, as imperfect as they are, sent out by Jesus to go preach the gospel and to minister to people. Ministry is always more effective in teams And so Jesus sent them out. Secondly, the second principle that we're going to see is that God will provide what we need. As we are going, as we are the ones sent out, as we go and minister to people, God will provide what we need. And so he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. So the instructions of Jesus was you are going to go and preach and you are going to take a walking staff. You are not going to take any food. You are not going to take any bread and you are not going to take any money to buy food or bread because I'm going to provide what you need and I'm going to provide it through the people that you minister to. And it's interesting as we look at this list, there is a very faint echo in the list of things that Jesus instructs his apostles to take. It's a very faint echo back to what the Israelites were instructed to take when they left after the 10th plague came and as Pharaoh and all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt were struck down, but the angel of the Lord passed over the Jews that were celebrating and the Israelites that were celebrating the Passover supper. And you have in Exodus 12, 11, the list of what they should provide. And Tyler, I think we have that as the next slide, man. In this manner, you shall eat it. Well, the it's the Passover. So the, the, they're to eat the Passover like this. Have their belt fastened. Have sandals on their feet have a staff in their hand, and they shall eat it in haste. 
And here you have the same things that the apostles were told to take. Take a staff. Put sandals on your feet. Don't put any money in your belt. It's, it's implied there that there is a belt that they are wearing. And not to put on two tunics. And I can almost guarantee you that the Israelites did not leave Egypt naked. It's a very faint echo to the Exodus. And I, I believe part of what Jesus is doing here as he's sending out his 12 apostles is he is telling them and instructing them and, and leading them out, commissioning them to go lead this new exodus of people. That where the Israelites were led out of Egypt with the exodus away from physical slavery by the hand of God, here you have the apostles being sent out, leading a new exodus of people out of spiritual slavery by the salvation of God. And they are told to go and to go in this way because God will provide every need exactly as he did for the Israelites that left Egypt. He provided every one of their needs. The, the account there and the, the following chapters of Exodus is just amazing when you, when you think about that. They, they wandered for 40 years and their sandals never wore through. Their clothing never wore out. God provided food for them every day. This was part of the provision of God who was actively daily providing for their needs as he led them out. And here's his same promise that he makes with the apostles. And I think principally that you and I need to understand that, that God will provide what we need. And so they weren't to be bogged down and bothered by a lot of cares. Well, what am I going to eat? Where am I going to get money? What about a change of clothes? They weren't, they weren't to be bothered by that. And I think you have Jesus saying, look, hey, the, guys, the time's now. Just don't concern yourself with those things. Just go. In verse 10, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet off as a testimony against them. And the third principle that we see is this. It is loving and appropriate to express the seriousness of rejecting the gospel. This is what is at play here. It is loving and appropriate to express the seriousness of rejecting the gospel. These these men, these 12, were sent out. They were commissioned to go two by two. They were commissioned to go and preach. They were commissioned to go and minister to people. And Jesus is saying, when you come into a town and you are preaching and you are healing and you're casting out demons and somebody welcomes you into their house, stay there. Don't go look for better accommodations elsewhere. Stay where you're welcomed. But if you're not Welcomed, if you are rejected, if the message that you are bringing is rejected, when, and at this point we should probably understand that they should have been anticipating lots of rejection. Because Jesus had in some ways only been met with rejection by the, the, uh, the elite. Rejection had been commonplace at this point. He says to them, when you are rejected... If any place will not listen to you and they will not receive you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet. Now that's a cultural thing. 
we read that and we just don't have much of a concept of what that is going to look like. But that's a cultural thing. And, and what that is and where that goes and comes from is if a Jew planted their feet or walked in a Gentile country, that Gentile soil was considered to be unclean. So whenever they would come back to Israel, they would shake the dust off their feet to knock the unclean soil off so that they did not contaminate the Holy Land. It's part of what we even saw just in the, just the massive uh, shifting that Jesus did when he took his disciples to this Gentile country. And they all got out of the boat, and they're all on this unclean soil. They, culturally, they would have had to come back. They'd have to kick the dust off their feet— purify their feet, and then they could go back to Jewish or holy soil. Well, here is what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. In the kicking off of dust off of one's feet in this sense is in essence declaring that that household that didn't receive them is no better than a Gentile or unclean. Those were inflammatory words. Those were inflammatory words, but I think we see here that it is loving and appropriate to express the seriousness of rejecting the gospel. To be Gentile, to be unclean, was to be outside the people of God. I think if you combine that with that very faint echo we have from Exodus and the the items that they were to have and to wear, you, you have... You have Jesus essentially giving us a picture that those who reject the gospel, even as Jews who have the bloodline of Abraham, are not a part of God's people. They're to be considered unclean. There was a a visual illustration and testimony against them by these apostles as they were rejected and not listened to that you, brothers and sisters— You are no better than an unclean Gentile. There was a seriousness expressed to the rejection of the gospel. And I think that's one of the things that we need to think about is that there is an appropriate and loving time, place, and way for us to express that. We need to be wise in how we do that. We need to be wise in how we think through those things. And, and, and these men, we don't get the impression that they were, were going back to their families necessarily. We're, we just have them as traveling itinerant preachers. And so there's going to be a, probably a different layer of wisdom that needs to get applied. If, if some of those rejecting the gospel are those in your family. But let's also not hide the fact that it is, it is serious to reject the gospel. And I contend that it is actually loving of those who believe in the gospel to express that seriousness. We can do it in a really unloving way. But we can also do it in a very gracious way, in a very loving way, in a very appropriate way. And it is loving and appropriate for us to express those things, to express the seriousness of rejecting Christ. And that's something that we need to be willing to consider, willing to speak 
about because the rejection of the gospel, it's eternal separation from God. The stakes don't get any higher. And so to not say something, to just simply let somebody reject the gospel and just walk away in their unbelief, I'm not sure how you can actually say that it is. That's loving. But it is loving and appropriate to express the seriousness of rejecting the gospel. What Jesus is doing at this point, what Mark records that Jesus is doing at this point, is creating this massive transition where he had been the one teaching, he had been the one healing, he had been the one doing ministry, and now he is giving and commissioning that authority on other people. This is going to lead up to and culminate on that commissioning being given to all disciples. And so Jesus, after the resurrection, gathers to him his disciples, and he does it in two different times that we have recorded in two different places. In Matthew 28, we have go into the world, make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that I have commanded. You have Acts 1.8, the, the disciples, the, the, the 120 at least that were gathered around him are kind of wondering like, hey, Jesus, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he goes, no, 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 that's not going to happen this way. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go and be my witnesses. You're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And you're going to go and tell. And there is this massive shift that has begun to occur between the old covenant and the new covenant that we see the beginnings of here in Mark 6. And it is this. Judaism at this point had been, and, and still for by and large today, is a come and see. In the Old Testament it was go to the temple. Come and see. You, you pilgrimage. You go to the temple. That's where sacrifices are made. You have now the, the synagogue system being set up around the, the land of Israel that they would, again, come and see. And here Jesus is telling them, go and tell. It's the beginnings of the go and tell shift. Where come and see is no longer the model. It is go and tell. And this would have been a foreign concept to the rulers, perhaps even the disciples in this system of Judaism. But let's be real honest, this is in some ways a foreign concept to the church in America. We're real comfortable with with a lot of the come and see we really struggle with the go and tell. But Jesus has created a people of tellers, a people of goers, a people who as they are going have been commanded to make disciples of all nations. So there's an appropriateness to the invitation. Hey, would you come to fall festival with me? Would you come to Wednesday night with me? Would you come to Sunday morning with me? There's an appropriateness to that invitation. But if you think the invitation has fulfilled the requirements of the Lord to make disciples, you have really lowered the bar on what that invitation, what that requirement of disciple making actually is. There's an appropriateness to the invitation of come and participate with us. But the command is for as you are going, make disciples. As you go to work tomorrow, as you do that family outing today, as you go to that restaurant later on this week, make 
disciples. Where are you going? That's your mission field. That's where we make disciples. I really appreciated how one guy said it this way. Churches may be mistaken who provide every part of the cultural life for their members. They need to be exposed more to life outside the church. Well, they will prove the power of the gospel rather than the safety of the church. And these things matter a great deal. Because our church has to be a go-and-tell church. We have to be a go-and-tell people. Again, there's an appropriateness to the invitation. Would you come to fall festival? Would you come to Sunday morning? There's an appropriateness to that. We have to be go-and-tell people. Some ways we have to be go and tell people because it's obedient to the scriptures and to our Lord who said, go and tell. And the other way, it's it's where people are. It's where people are. And so we go to those football games on Friday nights as missionaries. We go to those band concerts as, as missionaries. You go to your school function as a missionary. You go to school tomorrow as missionaries. You go as ones who have been sent. You go as ones who have been commissioned to go and make disciples. And we have to try and find and leverage every opportunity we have as a church to engage in our community. We can't just be a come and see place. We have to be a go and tell people. And so a couple weeks ago, I was contacted by uh, the Summer Jubilee Board that is planning the July 4th escapades in our community. And they were asking if we would be willing to uh, be a part of that and man a tent in the kids' area for them. And their request was for five people. So I had an opportunity to speak with Carmen Fox last week, and Carmen and I discussed these things, and, and we, we were talking about them and what they need and what we could provide, and I said, this is where we let, ended our conversation. I said, Carmen, I, I, I want to tell you we can get 10. So pencil us in for 10, and we're going to take the 12 to 2.30 shift, and we'll kind of figure out what that looks like as I have people express interest, and we get a team together but we're going we're gonna to go above and beyond what you're requesting because we want to be involved in this community. We want to be where other people in our community are. We want to be engaging with them. And she's like, okay. So this morning, as you go out, there will be a clipboard back by the world map that was drawn up for us to just get a picture of what we're doing around the world. But here is a local sense, and there's just very basic information. So the information at this point is this. Our responsibilities will be from 12 to 2, 2.30 on July 4th. We will be responsible for one of the kids' tents. I think with about 10 people, we can do that. If we have more, and I would love there to be more, we may just be able to take the whole 12 to 2.30 shift for both tents. And so there's a clipboard with some lines for you to express your interest. Just give me your name. Perhaps email would be great, and then we can contact. And we're going to put a team together because ministry is more effective in teams. We're going to figure out who is there that day, who is able, who's willing, who's interested, and we're going to go love on kids and families in our community on July 4th. 
And I was really excited about this. Her initial question was, can the youth group do this? And so I started asking a bit more and said, okay, well, can, can we have like fifth and sixth graders do this if they want? And what about if their parents come? And that, that's how I think we can get this number to be much, much bigger. It's because families can go and do this. It's not just a student ministry thing. It's not just a children's ministry thing. This is, this is a church thing that we're going to be able to go and do. It's a church thing. We're going to be able to go into those tents and we're going to be able to love those people and we're going to be able to say hi to those kids and and rub shoulders with them and meet those parents and have an opportunity to have conversations with them because we got to be a go-and-tell church. We have to because that's where the people are and it's in obedience to the Scriptures. We've got a beautiful opportunity in two months to go be that, to put feet to this. And so consider it pray about it. Let's get families signed up for it. I'm hopeful. I would love for this to happen. Us just completely, completely take over both tents for those two and a half hours. That we're the, we're the only group in there because we just provided the amount of people they needed. I think we can do it. We're going to set the minimum at 10, but let's surpass that. And let's love our community well because we have to be a go and tell church. Can't be come and see. That transition between the old covenant and the new covenant. We're now go and tell people. And here's the very, very beginnings of this expressed in the gospels. That Jesus called the apostles to himself and he sent them. After he rose from the dead, he called all the disciples to himself and he sent them. And that has been a perpetuating call for the past 2,000 years. So let's put feet to that. Let's apply this in this way. Let's be this church and, and acknowledge and say thank you to our community who, who made the call. Let's respond. Let's fulfill it. Let's go above and beyond their expectations. So would you pray with me? Band's going to come up. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to see in your word the, these transitions that are occurring. The, these moments where the, the, the text is, is moving around and, and, and we're transitioning between an, an old style to, to now the new, the new way. And no longer just a, a come and see, come to the synagogue, come to the temple, but you have sent us out as your temple to go and tell. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us great skill to go and do that Lord you are great you are majestic you are you're higher than any other Jesus is the name that is above every name and so Lord even as, as we sing God I pray that you would remind us of who you are that our, that our familiarity with you, that our, that our normal patterns and routines of coming here each week in and week out and, and, and being a part of, of these people wouldn't, wouldn't dull us to what takes place in this moment, in these moments when we gather. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, is here to meet with us. So Lord, we thank you for meeting with us already. And as we respond, Lord, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified by our response before you. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus.
Amen. Would you stand, please?